Well, thank you for joining me in that prayer this morning. And we are thankful that the scriptures tell us, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We're thankful that the Lord has given us the means by which to bring our needs before Him so that we need not fret, we need not fear. May I encourage you in that this morning uh, before we move into our text, um, that as we've said several times, as particularly as it relates to this, this time, um, you need not fear. Uh, you need not be afraid. Uh, you need not be as those that have no hope. But remember that our times and our seasons are in the Lord's hand, and that does not give us license to be frivolous or license to be negligent or, or reckless, but it does give us freedom from fear, freedom from worry, freedom from doubt, and gives us the means by which to be able to operate in safety and security and confidence and do the things that God would have us to do uh, in the manner that God would have us to do them. For the last uh, couple of weeks, we have considered specifically in our morning, well, first and evening message and then into last week in the morning message, Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, the, the initial verses, uh, really verses uh, 1 through 12, contains technically six commands. I've broken it down in preaching form into five commands, beginning with the command to listen, right? And, and uh, that, that would be that sixth one that I didn't preach on explicitly. In verses 1 and 2, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. And so the, the, that's really an introductory command, saying, listen to me, because this is where length of days, long life, and peace are found. Again, not in some sort of uh, um, biological way, not as though if you do these things, if you hearken to these things, then there's not going to be any sort of biological harm uh, done to you throughout your life or you will inevitably have a long life, but rather that all things being equal, all things being as they are, all things operating as God has designed them to be, uh, we align ourselves with the one who wrote the user manual and we will find um, the, the maximal success. We will find maximal uh, um, prosperity as it relates to uh, those elements of God's design within this world uh, for ourselves, for our circumstances, for our children, for our families, for our future, and, and such. And the first one that we considered uh, two weeks ago on Sunday night was the, the command in chapter uh, 3, verse 3, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. And we connected these things to Ephesians and this idea that God has called the church to speak the truth in love. Mercy and truth, right? Truth in love. And that we must have this important and proper balance between truth and love, that we speak the truth, we live the truth, but we do so within a context of love, we do so within a context of mercy, we do so within a context of compassion. And some of that uh, we'll see carry through to what we're going to talk about this morning. One of the reasons we do that is because we fully understand that, that, that I am no better than anyone else, that the only thing that stands between me and where so many are that walk in darkness is the grace of God. And that grace is not my grace, that grace is God's grace that was given to me. Naturally, that's what grace means. If, if it were earned or worthy in any sort of way, shape, or form, it is not grace. We talked about that 
uh, last Sunday night as we contemplated together grace. And then we went to the next one in verses 5 and 6, and we considered this last Sunday morning. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And we were exhorted to trust the Lord. We were exhorted to keep the Lord as our trust, to not trust ourselves, to not trust our circumstances, to not trust how we're feeling, to not trust even our senses, except to the extent that God has designed them to be trusted, right? So there's a context within which our senses operate. Our senses operate in the physical. Our senses operate in the material. My senses are very good for telling me whether or not I'm touching something that's too hot. My senses are very good at telling me whether or not that Lego on the floor is not good for my foot when I step on it. That, those things are very, very good. My senses are very, very good for that. Now, my wisdom and my understanding are also good for these things. God has given me re- reason. God has given me uh, the capacity to, to interpret things and then make decisions based upon what I have interpreted. And all of that is good, but only to the extent, only within the context that God has designed it, only to the extent to which uh, those things are, are, are within the scope of God's design. But when we get into the spiritual when we step into the realm of the spiritual, my senses are no longer as, as good for me. It doesn't mean they can't be used at all, but it means that I need something more. I need God's revelation. I need God's word. These things which uh, God has designed by nature to be somewhat counterintuitive to our senses and yet are in fact true. And again, that's going to come up this morning as well. So we have in some ways a building, a building of ideas here one building on top of another as we continue through these commands. And these commands are not dependent upon one another, but the previous command does help the next command. We had talked on Tuesday evening about uh, Hebrew poetry. We're going to see some some Hebrew poetry explicitly within verses uh, 7 and 8, but we also talked about Hebrew poetry as it related to long-form design of of some of these uh, poetic or proverbial sections of the Bible. And what we would see here is a a type of climactic parallelism uh, where we see the previous thought building uh, on the thought that was before it, or the the subsequent thought, excuse me, building upon the previous thought. And we see a building of thoughts here, a progression of thoughts within our teaching. And that leads us to verses 7 and 8 this morning. And verses 7 and 8 of Proverbs 3 tell us this, Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and morrow to thy bones. And that's the the chunk that we're going to consider this morning. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says, Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Be not wise by thine own reckoning. Don't Don't consider yourself wise. I'm honestly the last person who can know whether or not I have any wisdom. But notice the contrast here, and here we have a a very clear contrastive parallelism. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. So we have a contrast between the person that is wise in their own eyes and the person who fears the Lord and thus departs from evil. By implication then, uh, by being wise in your own eyes, there is a tendency toward evil, and we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. And as we consider this concept, be not wise in thine own eyes, there's another phrase that comes up significantly more often in the scriptures than wise in thine own eyes, but has the exact same idea. And it's a phrase that we're going to hearken to several times within the scope of verses this morning. And it is the phrase wise in thine own 
conceit. Be not wise in thine own conceit. The idea of conceit, if you've ever had someone that, that, that you have considered or that has, has uh, con been considered conceited, the idea that person is conceited. The idea there when we're saying that person is conceited is that they are, are, are very self-focused. A conceited person is a self-focused person. Now the word conceit actually means one's imagination or one's conception, one's perception, one's opinion. And so a conceited person is a person who elevates their own opinion. A conceited person is a person who has a, who, who has a high regard for what they think and believes that what they think should really matter, not just to themselves, but to others. And so we see this concept of conceit and we find that conceit is something which uh, our society in particular is absolutely permeated with. We live in a society, a me-focused society. So me-focused is our society that not only do people, uh, are people convinced that they are right about everything, not only do people uh, so highly regard their own opinion that they are fully willing to completely disregard every other opinion and completely disregard even uh, facts and logic in order to, to stand upon their own uh, opinion, but we are in such a conceited society that people will demand that you conform to their opinion, that you not just allow them to have their own opinion and allow them to have their own idea, but that you affirm their idea, that you confirm their preconceived notions, that you elevate their conceit to your esteem, or else they will call you all sorts of names, or else they will uh, seek to silence you, or else they will hate you. And this is conceit. So the idea of, of being wise in my own conceit, a parallel idea to being wise in my own eyes. The idea that within my opinion, within my framework, within my way of thinking, I am wise. It is the idea that, that I have the tools within myself to be able to, to know everything and to do everything, and I don't need others, I don't need external influences and, and the like. You say, well, pastor, no one's quite like that. Well, perhaps no one's quite like that as far as shutting out all external influences, but that's okay, it's, it can still be conceit. It can still be conceit. And so the scriptures say, be not wise in thine own eyes. Don't be wise in your own conceit. And the contrast is with fearing the Lord and departing from evil. This is the difference between the person that has confidence in themselves and what they know and the person who has confidence in God. And there is a very important distinction to be made here, not just as it relates to Christians versus the world, but there's also a very, very important distinction here as it relates to Christians and religion. The difference between the Christian who is going to be rightly related to God and rightly related to God's Word and the person who is a religious person who will not be is the religious person is convinced that they are right. The godly person is convinced that God is right. May I say that again? The religious person is convinced that he is right. The godly person is convinced that God is right. As we walk through this life, as we read the Word of God, as we interpret it in a certain way, 
it is tempting to say, I've read it, I've interpreted it, I am right. I am right about what the Bible says, I am right about all these things. And yet, there's a mindset shift that happens when you read the Word of God and you, you do your best and you read it and you interpret it and you take it at face value and you do everything you can, believing that God has sought to, to, to reveal Himself to you, and then at the end of all of that to say, God is right and I am going where God will point me. And that is where I'm, my loyalty is going to remain. My loyalty is not going to remain with a system. My loyalty is not going to remain with an ism. My loyalty is not going to remain with a, a person's teaching. My loyalty is not going to remain with any of those things. My loyalty is going to remain with God. And naturally that will bring about a consistency of interpretation. And then we are confident in that consistency uh, to the extent that we can be and to the extent that God has revealed himself to us. But our loyalty is not to the system. Our loyalty is not to the religion. Our loyalty is to God. We want what God wants. We are going where God's going, and that is what we are seeking. That's the difference. That's the contrast here. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So what we are doing here is we are saying God is right. I'm going God's way. And if God says it, I'm going to believe it. If, if, if God wants it, then I'm going to submit to it. I'm not going to rely, again, on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge him. Right? That's that building idea. And so as we consider this topic, we, consider it, we can consider it from a very practical, material standpoint, and then we can also consider it from a spiritual standpoint. And then, then as we, we consider the spiritual standpoint, we can break it down into uh, the unbeliever versus the believer versus, I don't mean that in a contentious way, just in a contrastive way, the unbeliever and the believer. And then also, as we just spoke of in part, the believers themselves. Now, if we were to trace this concept through Proverbs, we would find a very practical, um, physical, material application to these principles as it relates to the way God has designed the world and then what that is supposed to mean for us. And we see that even in Proverbs 3 as it says, fear the Lord and depart from evil, right? So the implication being that by being wise in my own eyes, I am going to find my way into evil. I'm going to find my way into those things which do not profit. I'm going to find my way into those things which are which are bad for me. Now remember, the, the, the biblical concept of evil is not necessarily sinfulness or wickedness, but simply that which is bad. So by being wise in my own eyes, it's not just that I'll fall into wickedness or sinfulness, but by being wise in my own eyes, I will fall into bad things, evil, uh, wrong circumstances. I will make mistakes. I will get fooled. I will, I will, be, um, I, I will be deceived. I will uh, be derailed in life. I will make wrong choices. I will, I will have problems. I will have contentions. I will have controversies. There will be drama. All of these things because I am wise in my own eyes, because I am insistent upon my way, because I'm looking at my own things and I'm saying that, that my own things matter, my own ideas matter, that, that they are my own feelings, my own urges, that they are so important to me that they override what God has told me, that they override the user manual, right? As we considered last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so the, first, the, the next time that we see this idea is in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. And the Bible says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. And so immediately we have this idea that the person who uh, is wise in his own eyes is a fool. The person who is wise in his own eyes is a fool. 
It's interesting. I was ta- I've been talking to people over the last couple of weeks, and one of the uh, I've, I've had two distinct interactions with uh, young people. And one of these young people uh, is in a time of learning, and they're fairly early in their time of learning. And one of the things that 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 was very obvious about this young person is that they were very confident in themselves. That as they have started to learn and their eyes have been opened, uh, they they began to think that they knew better, that they knew better than all of the people that were were, were ahead of them, that they knew better than the 50 years of history that had gone before them, that they knew better than all of these things, that they have some sort of insight that these other people just don't understand. And if, if all of these, uh, these, these other people, uh, specifically these older people, would just get out of the way and just let things be as they're supposed to be, uh, then we'd be in much better shape. And then I interacted with another person, and this person was, is also in, in a time of learning and yet is, is farther along. And this person contacted me and said, could you lend me, could, could, you, could you pass some resources my way? And then I asked them about uh, um, their, their time of learning and, and they had said that, uh, um, that they were going to continue in such and such a fashion and, and said it this way, because I'm starting to, or I'm realizing the more I learn how much I don't know. And this is an important concept. There's an old uh, um, story about Socrates uh, that, that formulates the same idea, that Socrates was sure that there were people wiser than him, so he went around the world looking for people that were wiser than him. And um, his standard for a person that was wiser than him is a person that understood just how little that they, under, that they knew, right? Uh, and the idea was he was looking for someone that knew how little they knew in order that he could show that there was someone wiser than him. And, and this idea, this idea that we step into everything understanding just how little we know, that even if you could memorize the entire Word of God, let's, let's take it from a religious standpoint for a moment, from a biblical standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, even if you had the entire Word of God memorized and you had sought to assimilate it as best as possible, there's still so little that God has sought to reveal to us. There's still so many things about the Lord and about His Word and about His His operation in this world that are beyond us. And so we understand just how little we understand. The fool, the way of the fool, the direction that the fool is going, the way he's chosen is always right in his own eyes. You wouldn't be going the way you were going if you didn't think it was right. Or if you didn't think it would benefit you or if you didn't want to. there's, There's some malleability there, right? But the wise man listens to counsel. The wise man doesn't disregard what other people are saying. The wise man understands that things have happened the way they've happened for a reason. And maybe that's not a good reason. And maybe, maybe it's, uh, the counsel is counsel that you need to pass on, uh, pass along, pa- pass, pass on, that you need to not take. There, there we go. Maybe that counsel is counsel that you should not regard. But the wise man does not just disregard. The wise man thinks about it. The wise man considers it. The wise man assesses it before moving on. We also see that there's a exhortation in Proverbs 26. And this is an interesting one. This is one of the, those uh, paradoxes within the Bible. In Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Excuse me. Uh, I started in 
Verse 5. Let's start in verse 4 this time. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And so we see this, this, uh, these two statements which seem to be contradictory, right? The first saying, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Because by doing so, effectively what it's saying is, don't get into the mud with the fool to, to, to argue with him. And this is the person, this is the fool, this is the person who will not see his way through, who uh, is being blind, and you would seek to help him. And by seeking to help him, he's just dragging you down into his own problems. He's dragging you down into his own misery. He's dragging you down into his own foolishness. And the Bible says to that, to, within that circumstance, don't answer him. Just leave him alone. Don't cast your pearls before swine, as Jesus would say, and let that man live in his own foolishness. Don't get into the mud with him. And then we see the, the, the other side of that. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And this is the idea, kind of the bully in the schoolyard idea, uh, that as long as the bully is left unopposed, he'll continue to bully. He'll continue to think that he, that, that, that he can be unopposed. And then you have someone that puts him in his place. And once someone puts him in his place, then he's in his place. Then, then, then he is brought down a peg or two, and he understands that maybe he's not everything. Maybe, he's, maybe the world does not revolve around him. And so there is this idea that the fool needs to be put in his place that he needs to be answered, that he needs to be rebutted to the extent that he can be or to the extent that what he might be saying is uh, touching the lives of others. So if a fool is just going to be a fool and it's just me and him and I'm trying to convince a fool uh, to actually try to convince a fool, then I, I, I'm going to end up in the mud with him. So I'm going to, to, to end up just banging my head against a wall as I try to get this fool to understand something which he will never understand because he's wise in his own conceit. But then simultaneously, when that fool begins to get a public platform and he puts himself out there and he begins to bring others along into his foolishness and he begins to convince others, well, this is the point where he needs a rebuttal. This is a point where not for his own sake, because he's not going to be convinced. The fool is not going to be convinced because he's wise in his own conceit. But maybe all of those people who are listening to the fool and saying, hey, there's, there's something interesting here. That sounds kind of good. That person needs to recognize and can be brought to recognize through my answer that the fool is a fool and that he is wise in his own conceit. And so I answer a fool according to his folly. And this is that idea. So what does the Bible say? Twice now we have seen the idea that the, the man who believes his way is right in his own eyes, the man who is wise in his own conceit, is a fool. He is a fool. And so we fear the Lord and we depart from evil. See, this is the difference between a person who thinks he is right and a person who thinks God is right. Don't be the kind of person who thinks you are right. Be the kind of person who thinks God is right. Do it God's way. Go God's way. Assimilate God's principles. Don't be rebellious. Don't be stubborn. Don't be foolish. Proverbs 26, verse 12, continuing there in Proverbs 26. The Bible says, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. The man wise in his own conceit is worse than a fool, verse 12 says. There's more hope that a fool will be brought into some measure of understanding than that a man who is wise in his own conceit, who thinks that he is always right, who has elevated himself to the standard of rightness. There's more hope for a fool than for that man. Don't be this, don't be this man. Don't be this woman. Don't be this person who is wise in your own conceit.
Verse 16 of the same chapter, the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Seven men who can answer to something. Seven men who are wise in their own right. But the sluggard is more wise in his own conceit than, than, than those seven men are wise in whatever topic it is uh, that they're seeking to render a reason. The sluggard, the lazy man, is a person who is self-entitled. The lazy man is a person who is self-conceited, who thinks that he knows best, who thinks that he has the answer, and who thinks that nobody else matters but him. So we see all of these practical elements. And there's one more verse uh, in the uh, Proverbs chapter 28, speaking of the rich man and the poor man. Uh, it's a little bit outside of the context that we're going for this morning, but Proverbs 28.11 speaks to the rich man being wise in his own conceit as well. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, Isaiah writes, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And this is the general principle. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. We need to understand just how much we don't know. We need to be willing to acknowledge just how much we don't know. And we need to be ready to listen to others who might just know some things that we don't. And this is important. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're always taking the advice of others. But it's important to understand how little you know, especially in regard to things that are outside of your own circumstances, outside of your own experiences, or outside of the Word of God. And that brings us, that, that, that's the physical, that's the material, that's the temporal, that's just the, the proverbial wisdom stuff. But let's talk then about the spiritual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see this concept applied to the spiritual as it relates to the unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is speaking in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians about the way that God has chosen to reach this world. And, he, and, and Paul says that he did so through the foolishness of preaching. So God has taken preaching, and though it is a, a, a foolish form of communication, though it is a man that is getting up and speaking, it's not grand miracles. It's not um, uh, tremendous signs and wonders. It is preaching. It is just a man getting up and speaking. And God has chosen this medium as the primary medium within the New Testament context for God's people to reach out to the lost world, for God's gospel to be disseminated. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God has chosen this medium and God has specifically chosen this medium because this medium, only the, the only power of this medium is in itself. In other words, I can get up all day and talk to you. And maybe I'll tell some jokes and be charismatic and be convincing in some way, shape, or form, and that's all well and good. But I don't have to be that way because God's Word stands on its own two feet. Truth stands on its own two feet. That to the extent that I don't have to be convincing, God can be convincing. I have to be clear. I have to make God's Word clear. And then as I make God's word clear, then the Holy Spirit can take those, the clarity of those words and do something with it. 
And so Paul is, says this in, in, verses, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. At the end of chapter 2, he says how the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the natural man, the carnal man, cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. To whatever extent any man understands a spiritual concept, it is because the Spirit of God has illuminated it to him. To that end, we understand that the unbeliever is illuminated to the only to the extent that that there's conviction, right? So Jesus tells us that when the Spirit of, uh, of, of God comes, that he would convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because... Um, he has ascended to the Father and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And that is the extent of the illumination that God gives to the unbelieving world. That they are sinners, that Jesus is righteous, and that all who do not accept his righteousness and align with his righteousness by grace through faith will be judged. Everyone receives that illumination according to Jesus. And then once they accept that illumination, then the Spirit of God indwells and he illumines the word as we are willing and able and, and ready to receive it. Now within the scope of this, Paul then in chapter 3 tells the church that he had to speak to them, that he, he could not speak to them as unto spiritual but as unto carnal. He had to go back to the carnal things and bring about carnal things because they were carnal and they were acting in a carnal manner. He warns them about the, the, the day of judgment and that there is wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones being built up for the believer, and that there's a day of judgment which will manifest how much will actually last into eternity. And then in verse 18, as he calls the church unto this manner of thinking, he says, Let no man deceive himself, 1 Corinthians 3.18. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And there he's quoting from Job chapter 5, verse 13. Verse 20, And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. That's Psalm 94, verse 11. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. And he speaks to the doctrines of Christ. As we walk through this, we recognize this idea. Now, he's warning a believe, believers here about not being wise in the world. In other words, not taking the world's principles and trying to apply them in, in, into a spiritual context. But we see here this principle as it relates to the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. That worldly wisdom is absolutely useless on a spiritual plane. The world's way of doing things is not effective on a spiritual plane. That as a person approaches the Word of God or the concepts of God, they must do so on a spiritual plane, not a physical plane. And of course the church has had some real problems with this, especially in the last 50 years or so, with the seeker-friendly and seeker-sensitive movement where the world has where the church has sought to use the world's methods, the, the church has sought to use the world's ideas, the church has sought to use worldly wisdom in order to bring people to a place where they can then hear the Word of God. And naturally, it has brought people to a place where they could hear the Word of God, and people have heard the Word of God, and people have gotten saved, but it certainly hasn't strengthened the church. The church, 
quite to the contrary, has been deeply weakened by these methods. And these methods are effectively an acknowledgement that, that we are not trusting the Lord to do things His way, we're going to do things our way, and there's a measure of effectiveness, but certainly nowhere like what could be if we would do things God's way. And so we need to understand this, that whenever we step into the context of the world, or as it relates to an unbeliever trying to understand the things of my life or the things of, of, of my, my decision-making process or the decision-making process of the church, I should not expect, nor do I need to worry about whether or not the world understands. Because the world operates within the context of worldly wisdom, and worldly wisdom has its place, but is not the preeminent element of biblical decision-making. And so we see this recognition as it relates to the unbeliever and the believer, that as the unbeliever looks at me, as the unbeliever tries to understand how I'm thinking and how I'm operating, and there may be a, a measure of, of, of proverbial wisdom in what I'm doing that they can identify and say, yeah, that's, what, that, that, that's a good idea, that's wise stuff, but simultaneously I don't need them to understand. I don't need the world to understand me. I don't need the world to agree with me. I don't need the world to affirm me. And to whatever extent you feel like you do is the extent to which you, you are on dangerous ground. Because the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. He taketh the wise in their own, in his, in their own craftiness. No flesh can glory in God's presence. God's way is higher than man's way. God's thoughts than man's thoughts, Isaiah 55. And we need to allow God's way to speak for itself. But it's not just interactions between believers and unbelievers that can bring about this sort of a danger where I feel the pressure um, to be wise in my own eyes or to assimilate the wisdom that is of the world, a wisdom which is of the world's own conceit. It can happen within the church as well. We see two instances in Romans chapters 11 and 12 where Paul warns about this very thing. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is very interesting. We, we summarized Romans 1 through 5 last Sunday night. That was quite a whirlwind um, as we sought to, to, to summarize those five chapters in order to get an understanding of grace. And remember I broke up Romans for you. Basically Romans 1 through 5 is the lost and then salvation by grace. So um, that man is lost, that the unbeliever uh, is, is lost, and that the evidences of his lostness are revealed through his action, but that the religious man is just as lost in that he uh, can be seen judging and comparing himself against the, the lost man who is uh, um, living out that immorality of, of a lifestyle of sin. And then as the, the religious man looks at the person who's living out that lifestyle of sin, not living that lifestyle himself, he compares himself and judges himself and assesses himself as a good man on the basis of comparing himself against the bad man, revealing a heart that is judgmental and evil in and of itself, thus putting him on a level plane with the bad man, so that all are sinful. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Enter grace. The great leveler of sin gives way to the great redemption that is in grace, whereby nothing, uh, through, through no effort of my own, through no capacity of my own, through no worthiness of my own, I cannot earn it, I cannot buy it, I cannot deserve it. 
God sent his son to die on the cross for me that he might be just and the justifier of them who believe on the Lord. And that's chapters 1 through 5. And then chapters 6 through 8 are, what does this mean for our mindset? If, if grace is what we step into, if, grace, if, if we stand in grace, and it's not just that we enter into grace, but we stand in grace, how should we live our lives? How should we think about ourselves and our sin? Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive unto Christ. And then we have chapters 9 through 11, which is a parenthetical. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then chapters 12 through 16, which say, okay, now practically speaking, what does this life look like? In chapters 9 through 11, Paul says, now what about Israel? If this is the case, that, that uh, salvation is by grace through faith, it's not through the law, it's not through the things that you can earn, it's not through, through any worth, it's not by, by virtue of your family connections or anything of the sort, then what about Israel? Has God cast them off? Has God given up on them? And, and Paul says, no, absolutely not. It's just that they do not have a heart of belief. And so they have fallen short. And he goes on to speak to his desire that all of Israel would be saved. And of course, they would be saved as any man is saved by believing the gospel. So chapter 11 says, I say then, verse 1, has God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Wot ye not that the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, at this present time, also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And so, within grace, there is a remnant of Israel. Uh, and we would expect that throughout history. There is a remnant of the physical seed of Israel that has that, that is standing in grace. And then he goes on to explain how there is coming a day then when all Israel shall be saved. So, verse 11 says, Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Notice what he says then. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Their fullness will be something much greater. He goes on to speak to um, the idea of the first fruit of the wild olive branches and the grafting in of the wild olive branches into, uh, or of the branches into the wild olive tree. And in doing so, he, he speaks of, as he says in verse 22, both the goodness and the severity of God. That God is good, and yet the just shall live by faith. And what he says here, the idea here, is that there's coming a day where Israel will be restored. Look at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Paul says here, 
don't be wise in your own conceits. God has, the, the diminishing of Israel, of the nation of Israel, has abounded unto your benefit. So that now the Gentile church dominates. We, we have the relationship with God that Israel has always wanted. The Christian church has the relationship with God that Israel has wanted from the beginning and they have never had. Not because they can't have it, but because of their own, the hardness of their own hearts. But Christian church, don't get wise in your own conceits. Don't think that this is you. Don't think that this is because of you. Don't think that that makes you something special. May I broaden this idea? Let's not just talk about the church in Israel and the fact that the nation of Israel today is still walking in this darkness, which God says they will come out of one day, by the way. But can I speak to this as it relates to other churches as well? We do what we do. We believe that the Lord has, has, has given us a discernment and an understanding as it relates to the way that we do church. And we do this the way we do this because we think that it's right and we think that it's best. And we look at other churches and they have made other choices. They have made other choices as it relates to age-segregated ministries. They've related, made other choices as it relates to youth ministries. They've made other choices as it relates to how they meet and where they meet and why they meet and all of these things. They've made other choices as it relates to various elements of standards. And, and while we do what we do because we believe it is best, because by God's grace at least, we do see this difference on a corporate level, we're trying to do what God wants us to do. We can fall into our own conceit. And say, no, 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 we're not, we're doing what's right. We're doing what's right, and everyone else is wrong. And we look at others, such as the nation of Israel, whom God has set aside for this time that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in, and their diminishing has been our riches. And we could say, aha, see, Israel's wrong and we are right. See, Israel has this deep problem, ha, ha, ha. Or we could say, wow, God. How much do you love me? And I don't understand all this. But what I do know is that I'm going to seek unto grace. And I'm going to seek to win others. And that's what Paul did with, with Israel. He went to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He went to a town and he went to the synagogue first. Why? Because he still knew and had a passion for his people to be saved. He still knew that God had a, has a heart for Israel. And then he steps outside of that into the Gentile world at the point that the Jews did what he would expect them to do, which is reject him. Right? And we need to be the same. We need to be careful that as a church, we are not wise in our own conceits. Well, what does this look like, Pastor? Well, it's the difference between us thinking that we are right and us believing that God is right. And so we are doing what we are doing not because it's not because we know better, not because we have some ins insight that the others don't have, not because we are smarter or more godly or, or, or those sorts of things, but because God is right. And so what are we going to do is we're going to humbly seek to align ourselves with God to the best of our knowledge and our ability. And then we see a very similar concept in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We see a number of commands, right? This is into that final section where it says, practically, what do we do with this? 
And so Paul calls us to exhort one another and to love one another and to not be slothful in business and to rejoice in hope and, and such. Verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Don't be the kind of church, don't be the kind of people that are constantly bickering and fighting over your own ideas. Stop with that. Don't be so wise in your own conceits. Don't be so convinced that you have the right way. Now, if, there's a, if it's very clear that it's not God's way, okay, that's God's way. Let's, let's follow that. And then what we do is you and I, if we're bickering, say, okay, are you going God's way? Am I going God's way? Do you want God's way? Do I want God's way? Okay, now we have level ground. Now let's find God's way. And then it will become very apparent very quickly if one of us wants our way instead of God's way. Be not wise in your own conceits. This should govern our personal interactions one with another. This should govern our corporate interactions as a church. This should govern our perception and interactions with other churches and other believers outside of our fellowship. This should govern our understanding of the unbelieving world and our relationship to them. This should govern every aspect of our lives. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. What are the results? Verse 8 of Proverbs 3. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Health to thy navel and, marvel, uh, and, and marrow to thy bones. Uh, the idea here is wellness. Health to thy navel. That's, uh, that's kind of the core of one's strength. The actual word there, navel, is, is cord, right? It speaks of the umbilical cord, the place where the umbilical cord was once attached. And the idea there being that the very core of you will be, will be strengthened and then marrow to your bones. That, that, that speaks of a suppleness. As a person gets older, as a, and certainly after they die, bones become brittle, right? They become hard. They dry up. And the concept of the dry bones is that the marrow is, is no longer there, and, and then they just become dry and brittle, and, um, and, and then they snap and they break, and, and they're good for nothing. So the idea of marrow to your bones means there will be a, a life and a vi vitality. When you're wise in your own conceits, your life revolves around yourself. And as you know from this society, this conceited society, there's a tremendous amount of damage done to oneself when your mind is always on you. There's a reason why the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. When I deal with people on a level of depression, on a level of anxiety, on a level of, of frustration, on a level of, of, of a person who feels as though they have no meaning in life, Nine times out of 10, I might even be able to go higher than that, 95 times out of 100, you're, I'm dealing with someone who is stuck on themselves, who spends all day thinking about themselves, worrying about themselves, trying to secure things for themselves. They are selfish. They are conceited. Everything revolves around them. Their world revolves around them, and they want everyone else to revolve around them as well. And this makes a person sad. This makes a person depressed. This makes a person frustrated. And when they come outside of themselves, they find in that a measure of freedom. Now, I'm not saying everyone uh, that, that has any sort of a problem. It's because of conceit. But it's amazing how much vitality, joy, and life comes from taking my eyes off of myself and doing things for others. 
And you know what else this does is it frees you to stop judging others. It's a very, very difficult life. It's a frustrating life. It's a tiring life to always be the arbiter of everyone else's decisions. It's a difficult thing to always be standing in judgment over others and deciding how much better you are than others and how much better your decisions are than others. And not only that, but it makes you kind of odious to others. But you know, it's an uncomfortable thing. It's a difficult thing. It's a tiring thing. It's a life-draining thing to spend your days worrying about others so much. Spend your days worrying about other people and their own and, and their sins and their decisions. Now, if you've got any means by which to open up the eyes to, to answer a fool according to his folly, uh, you do that. If you've got the means by which to help correct a person in their, in their decision-making process because of, of their own bad decisions or whatever, or whatever it is, you do that. But to just sit in your ivory tower and to look down at people and, and, and uh, to judge their decisions and their ideas um, is tiring. And it's not going to add to your health and to your wellness. And so the man who is not wise in his own conceits, the man who fears the Lord and departs from evil, the man who is wise in the Lord's way, he doesn't spend his time judging others. He doesn't spend his time assessing himself against others. He spends his time serving others, loving others, helping others. He spends his time investing in others. And as we are not wise in our own conceits, as we recognize the things that we don't know, as we stop worrying about what others don't know, as we live in a manner that is aligned with not being loyal to my understanding or my thoughts or my way, but being loyal to God's way and God's understanding and seeking to align with it constantly and encouraging others to do the same, it will be health to my navel and marrow to my bones. There will be a physical joy, a physical vitality. You all know, and I know well also, the degree to which the physical body and the spiritual are related. So let's make sure that we're doing what we ought to spiritually, not just for the sake of the spirit, but for the sake of the body as well. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. The third of these commands that the father gives to his son and the first one, mercy and truth. The second, trust in the Lord, acknowledge him in all your ways. The third, be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Tonight we'll continue into the fourth, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruit of thy increase. And we'll consider that one together in our time this evening. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God.